Uh, good morning, folks. It's great to be here this morning to speak to you. Um, just while the offering's going round, um, I just kind of feel a real sense of um, wanting to encourage you this morning that it's good to be here in church. Um, I love coming to church. Um, it's easy for me to get out of my bed and get here in the morning. If I'm not in church, um, then I always get this kind of little unsettled feeling that God's going to be doing something here and I've missed it. But I'm aware that it's not like that for everybody. And for you this morning, it might have been a bit of a struggle to get out of your bed and get here. And I just feel I really want to encourage you. Um, there's a verse in Hebrews that says um, that we shouldn't give up meeting together. Um, some have developed a habit of, um, of not meeting together. And we're encouraged not to be like that. And just in the context of what we were talking about, the kids this morning, um, let's do a wee bit of a nice breaker. Christians love icebreakers, don't they? So um, I'll tell you a fact about me that you might not know. And that is that between the ages of five and 13, wait for this, I had perfect attendance for nine years at church on a Sunday in either Sunday school or youth Bible class. And I don't just mean term time, I mean 52 weeks a year. Can you believe that? Um, I went to a Brethren church where being there on a Sunday was a really, really important feature of church life. And obviously my parents were very invested in making that happen for my brother and I. And we had a Sunday school where you had... um, prize giving at the end of the year and there were prizes for all sorts of things uh, for being able to recite bible verses for being able to say the books of the bible as quickly as you could from beginning to end that's my party trick very boring i know um, and one of the things you got was um, a, a reward for perfect attendance and the top award was five years and then i exceeded five years and we got to seven and then after seven years we got to nine and then after that they were like you're not getting any more we've stopped i got a timex watch and i remember um When we were on holiday, we used to go to church. My parents would take us to church. And uh, we were in a brethren assembly, so you had to take a little letter with you from your home church that said who you were, so that you would get in to be able to break bread and uh, take the bread and the wine. And I remember one Sunday, we were up in the west coast of Scotland somewhere, on an island, or um, um, up the west coast somewhere in the middle of nowhere. And we turned up at this church, my mum and my dad and my brother and I, where we would have doubled the numbers if they'd let us in. But my dad didn't have the letter with him, and they wouldn't let us in. So um, my dad, aware of my kind of record of like attendance at Sunday school, was like, right. So he herds us all back to the car, which, if I remember correctly, was a kind of metallic brown Allegro at the time, if that means anything to anybody here. And we got back to the caravan site and into the caravan, my dad was like, right, sit up at the table. And he goes into the fridge and he gets out the Ribena and he goes into the bread box and he gets a loaf of hovis and he plonks them on the table and he's like, we will do church. And... Um, <laughs> And so we did. We broke bread and drank Ribena as a family and we did church and I um, managed my nine years perfect attendance at uh, Sunday school. <laughs> so um, I just want to say to you, if you're a parent, that it's a really important habit to instill in your children and um, being here on a Sunday morning and prioritising that as a family. And I know we all need downtime and we all need family time doing other things, but I think if parents, if we communicate to our children the importance of being in church and of being together as God's family, I think that's a really good habit that sticks with them through life. And when they get into adolescence and older years, and maybe they're thinking, will I or won't I, will I or won't I go to church this morning? I think if it's a habit that's built into you, it's easier to get yourself out of bed and get there. Um, but if you're here this morning and it was a struggle for you, it's great that you're here. Um, I'm pleased that you're here this morning. Um, I've been asked to speak to you this morning in our series, If This, Then That. And my understanding is that if this, if this is what the Word of God says, if this is the God we believe in, then that, something should follow on from that. And that thing that follows on is how we work out these truths in our lives. And that's really what I'm here to speak to you about this morning. I've been asked to speak to you about change this morning. Um, So that's what I'm going to do. And um, 
I've been feeling a bit nervous about this. I said, yes, at the time, I'll do that. That'll be fine. And then about a fortnight into it, I had a bit of a wobble, and I thought, I'm just going to phone Luke and say, actually, it's too much. And then I thought, no, it's a privilege, it's a responsibility if he asked you to do this, so I'm just going to push through with it. And then the list came through, and I realised that last week was Dan, and next week is Luke, and I feel a bit like the kind of locality filling in a really substantial sandwich. <laughs> and I happened to speaking to Annalie Danes last week, and she said the best thing that I have heard anybody say for quite some time when I was telling her how I was feeling. She said to me, but Jackie, you have to remember, it's not your day job. So I'm just putting that out there <laughs> as, as, um, as a, a statement to kind of set expectations this morning that uh, this is not my day job. Um, I'm really just here um, to, to bring some kind of um, practical advice and just what God has laid in my heart about change and about a passage in the Bible and what God can say to us from it. Um, so, change. When I started to think about this, I always do a little mind map. That's my way of organising my thoughts. And I decided that um, if I was talking about change, I would categorise change in three ways change that we experience in our lives. Uh, there's a change that we choose. There's a change that we pursue. There's change that we embrace. And those are the easiest kinds of changes in life to deal with and to see through because when we make those changes, we're invested in them. Um, if you're at work and you feel a bit restless and you see a promotion or an opportunity come up and you think, I could do that job, I'm going to go for it. And you get the job, and then you get in the job, and the job's a little bit tricky. It's more difficult than you thought. The relationships are a bit fraught. That's still an easier change to deal with because you've embraced that change in the first place and you're invested in it. So there's a change that we choose, the change that we embrace, the change that we pursue. And I would call, I think most of us would call that positive change in our lives, the things that we choose and move forward in. Then there's a kind of change that I would say is more like a kind of natural seasons of life type of change. So you're a child and then you become an adolescent and then you become a young adult. Um, and then you become a proper adult when you have a mortgage or maybe a, a, a car to drive or um, whatever. Um, and you might be a single person and choose to be married. Uh, you might be a couple and choose to start a family. And then you become like Jay and I when you're the cusp of starting that empty nest thing when you've got one who's almost about to move on to student life and then you move into a phase where um, you're a more mature person and then an older person and then an elderly person and then there are all the seasons of life changes that come with that and for the most part we can look ahead and see those kind of changes coming those kind of seasons of life changes and in a way that makes them perhaps slightly easier to anticipate and prepare for and to handle and I think in those kind of changes we're aware that other people around about us are dealing with the same kind of changes, either at some point or in the past or will do in the future. And then there are the changes that we find probably most difficult. The changes that we find tricky, the changes that we find challenging, are changes that come our way that we don't choose for ourselves. Changes that come into our lives that we didn't select, that we didn't look for, that sometimes we would rather stand back from or not embrace. And these kind of changes involve some of the things that we will be talking about more specifically in this series. Changes like loss, which Dan talked about last week. Um, redundancy and the loss of a job, the failure of a relationship, sickness or illness that comes along, that fundamentally changes our lives, either permanently or for a period. And those changes are difficult changes for us to embrace. And I think the other thing that I thought about in my mind map when I did my little mind map was a little bit about um, how we view change. 
Because actually our personalities, the kind of person that we are, um, our upbringing, our experiences, all colour a view of change and what that means for us. Um, I'm a teacher, but I don't have a class full time anymore, and I'm on the management team in my school. And um, they're desperate for people to take on leadership roles in education uh, because there are so many posts to fill. So they're keen to send us on these courses that will help us to develop our leadership skills. And uh, they sent me on a course which was about building relationships and teams. And the first thing they ask you to do is analyse your own personality. So they get you to tick all these boxes about yourself and then they give you a score and then they have an axis like this and they plot on the axis where they think you are and define who you are. So it turns out on this course that I go on that the guy is going round and he's saying to all these people, well, you're a little bit of this and you're a little bit of that and I think there's a bit of this about you. Then he moves to the next person and he says, yes, well, there's quite a big bit of this and a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And then he came to me and he said to me, well, you're a pragmatist. That was it. <laughs> I was like, anything else? He said, well, you're a passionate pragmatist and you have autocratic tendencies under pressure. <laughs> I was like, right, okay. And I was slightly disturbed by that to begin with. I'm like, autocratic tendencies, what does that man mean? But actually, when I got away and I thought about it, I thought, actually, if you were on a sinking ship, would you not want someone with slightly autocratic tendencies <laughs> under pressure? Bossing people about, saying who's first in the queue and what should happen. So... But what I'm trying to say is that I'm a pragmatist and what I realise about myself is that the things that I invest my time in and that I will give my heart and my uh, commitment to are things that I think will succeed. I'm not very good at committing myself if I think there's an element of risk that something might not work out. So my pragmatism makes me have a certain predisposition towards change. Now, I'm married to Jay and when I was doing that, you know, as you're ticking the boxes and thinking about how you are, I'm thinking, oh, that would be Jay's box. Oh, that would be Jay's box, that would be Jay's box. And what I think about Julie, who wasn't there at the time, was there was a quarter of this graph, and I was thinking, Jay would be like there. And I'm thinking, so what I think he would be is an idealist entrepreneur. Those were two of the kind of sections. And what that means is that when Jay sees an opportunity, he wants to fill that vacuum with something. He wants to create and make and expand and push and go. So you can imagine there are lots of really interesting conversations in our house <laughs> when it comes to anything that involves change. But what I'm trying to say is that the way that we approach change has a lot to do with that kind of thing, about how we see ourselves, what we think our strengths are, what our experience has been, and about the environment that we're part of. But what's important, laying all those things aside, is that we look at what God's Word says about change and about how we can handle and how we can manage change. And why is that important? What is the, what is the learning intention here? What is it we're really trying to grapple with well, what we're really trying to look at is how we respond to the changes which challenge us. What does the Bible say about what our attitude to change should be? What does the Bible say about our response to change and why does that matter? Well, it matters to us because we have things that we want to accomplish in life. I spoke a wee while ago about um, perseverance and staying on track. And if every time we come up against a change that's difficult in life, it takes us off track, it's going to make us um, less fruitful we're going to get uh, less distance in our journey with God. We're going to accomplish less. So being able to manage and handle change in our lives is quite important. The other thing I think, especially in the context of, of the news this weekend, is that as unpleasant changes come our way and we see things in life which are difficult to grap grasp with, grapple with and to grasp, our response to changes which are difficult or bring us challenge speaks to the world about who God is. Um, 
John Greenleaf Whittier was a 19th century poet and a lot of his poems were put to music. And the words of the hymn, Dear Lord and Father of Mankind, are his poem. And there's a verse in there that says this. It says, Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. So there's something deep and there's something godly about being able to manage change in our life in a way that speaks of the peace of God and of the stillness of God in our lives. We will come across the same kinds of changes and difficulties that people out there who don't know Jesus will come across. And how we respond and how we deal with that speaks of the God that we believe in and the certainty and the hope that we have. So, um, when I was thinking about this, I thought, well, do you know, I'm going to go to the dictionary as I always do and look up the word change. And so I discover when I look at the word change in the dictionary that change is both a noun and a verb. And change as a noun means the act or fact of changing, the substitution of one for another. And immediately when I read that, the substitution of one for another, this verse in the Bible came to mind. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone and the new is here. So in actual fact, the biggest, the most fundamental change that could ever take place in your life has already taken place if you are believing that Jesus' death on the cross paid the price for your sin. If you're a child of God this morning, that transformation has already happened. There was something old that is now something new. And this morning you are a new and you are a changed person by virtue of the fact that you have accepted the salvation that Jesus bought for you on the cross. You were dead in your sin and transgressions, but he has made us alive with Christ. That change has already taken place. But change is already also a verb. And the definition in the dictionary said to become altered, to gradually pass into, to go from one to another. And here as a verb, change is more of a process. And that process, as we experience God and work with him in our lives, is that process that we call sanctification, which is about processing through our lives and becoming more and more like Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, it says, And we all who with unfailed faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image. Now, we can't work for our salvation. Our salvation is a gift from God. But it tells us in Philippians, Dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So we have this act that happens when we come to salvation, but we have this process that is ongoing that is changing us throughout our lives. Now, I've said to you before that I grew up in um, a a church where um, theology was different from it is here parts of it. And uh, the church that I was growing up in, we didn't um, really know about or experience the Holy Spirit uh, the way that we do here. There was a cessationist view that actually the Holy Spirit was around doing miraculous things for the establishment of the early church, and that when the apostles died out, so did these miraculous happenings, the work of the Holy Spirit, really. And uh, I guess as a child, I thought that the Holy Spirit was maybe my conscience. It would convict me about the things that I should repent of, but that was really it. And I really thought as a child, as I was growing up, as I gave my life to Jesus when I was nine, but I think in the environment that I grew up in, um, salvation was a destination. And that was really what it was all about. 
that when you got saved and you asked Jesus into your life, that was kind of it and you'd arrived. And what I realized when I kind of stepped out of that as a young adult and began to go to other churches where I could sense the presence of God was actually real. And God was actually speaking and happening and moving now. What I realized was that that wasn't actually right. And that actually our salvation is not a destination. Our salvation is a gateway. Our salvation is the point at which we meet the living God and he becomes real in our lives. And it's at that point that this most amazing process of change in us begins. That our salvation is a gateway, it's not the destination. And if you imagine coming to a gateway at a field, and you can see this glorious field, but if you think that the gate is the destination and that's all you get to, look at how much we're missing out on. So I just want to encourage you this morning as we talk about change to think about that. That this change that we're involved in is a process that God is working with us to change us to be ever more like him. And within that, there is a challenge for us. And I've been challenged by that as I've been really thinking about this. I'm thinking to myself, well, if this is a process of change and this process of sanctification is me and God working together, him empowering me in my life, then how am I different? How am I different from the person I was a year ago? How am I different from the person I was five years ago or 10 years ago? Is there more patience in me? Is there more faithfulness in me? Do I have more hope? I think that's a challenge for all of us as we think about this, that as we think about change, what are the changes that God is creating in us? We're going to read um, a passage in the Bible, which we probably don't often read at this time of year. I felt really called to this passage as I was thinking about what I would say about change, because I wanted to look at a passage in the Bible where someone was experiencing the kind of change that I talked about in that kind of third category of a change that was probably going to be troublesome or difficult. And I'm going to read to you from Luke chapter 1, which is where the angel Gabriel comes and uh, speaks with Mary. I'm not going to read it from there, I'll read it from here. Okay. It says, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favour with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son and you're to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be? Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And the angel left her. So, here is Mary, this young girl, betrothed to be married to Joseph. And one day, the most amazing, unexpected announcement is made. An angel is before her telling her that the course of her life is about to change in a way that she could never possibly have anticipated. And I want to just look at Mary's experience as we work through this passage to look at her reaction and to see what we can learn about how we might also react to the changes that we come across 
in our life. So the angel says to Mary, greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. And later on, he says, do not be afraid, Mary, you have found favour with God. Now, I wonder, what does that word favour mean? Was Mary favoured? What was the outworking of God's favour? And does that mean then that God has favourites? Now, as a teacher, it's really easy to think of what that means to have a favourite. And it's a really difficult temptation to resist. And when I started out as a teacher in my early teaching career, the favourite children in my classes were always the really compliant ones, the ones who make it really easy to do your job, the ones who come to school and who do what they're told and who don't have any trouble with their learning and who behave nicely and who do what they're meant to do in the playground and can help you around the classroom and sharpen your pencils and say please and thank you and all those nice things and those would be my favourite children. Then you kind of move into a phase of teaching with a little bit more confidence behind you and you think, actually, my favourite children are the children that give me a little bit of a challenge in their learning because actually I'm becoming a bit of an expert now. So my kind of favourite child began to change and I was looking for the children who were kind of needy in their learning because I believed I could really make a difference. And then um, you get a bit further on into your teaching and you just get a bit kind of um, fed up with the kind of, you know, you get that kind of... And you think, right, okay, I've been doing this for years. Oh, I think I'm making a difference at the margins of some children's lives, but actually I'm not really sure about that. And then there are no kids who are your favourite for a while. And then maybe, <laughs> and then maybe you move into a phase of life, which I'm kind of in now, which is that uh, some of my kind of favourite children in school are children when I see a little bit of me and them as children. And I think, um, actually, I can work with that. I know where you're coming from. I get you. And I can really be in there with you, supporting you and helping you. So I think if you're a teacher, you probably identify with some of that because it's really easy to have favourites. But the thing about having a favourite as a teacher is this, that by virtue of the fact that you're choosing a favourite, you are excluding other children from your favour. And whether you actually externalise that in the things that you say and the way that you run your classroom or whether you just manage to handle that well and you know in your head that's what it is but you treat everybody fairly somewhere along the line there in terms of choosing favorites there is an exclusion of others so it's really important this morning that we understand that God's favor is not necessarily like our favor because God's favor doesn't exclude anybody we're all recipients of God's favor through Jesus death on the cross the penalty of our sin and judgment is removed we accept forgiveness by faith and we are called righteous and any man or woman, any boy or girl on the planet can step into that favour. It's freely available for everyone. No one is excluded. And in addition, God shows favour to the ones who delight in him. And that's the position that Mary was in. When the angel came and said to Mary, you are favoured, that's what the angel was saying, that you delight in him, you connect with God, you give honour to him, and God's favour is a response to your heart and your attitude, Mary. Um, I love this verse in Chronicles. It says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. I love that. The idea that God, this very moment, is looking out over the earth and he is skimming and he is scanning the surface of the earth to see those whose hearts are perfect towards him. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of them whose heart is perfect towards him. And as we turn our heart towards God, he shines his favour on us. And as we turn our heart toward God, he shines his favour on us. So if we want to know God's favour in our lives, it's as simple as taking a step towards God. It's as simple as connecting with him and engaging with him. And we will know God's presence and God's presence with us is his favour. 
So what does that mean? Does that mean that if things are going well in our lives, we have God's favour? And if things are not going well in our lives, we don't have God's favour? Well, we'd be confused and we'd be wrong if we think that. Because it tells us in the Bible that godless people prosper. In Jeremiah, it says, You are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? And it tells us also in the scriptures that godly people suffer. In 2 Corinthians, it says, As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. In great endurance, in troubles, hardships and distress, in beatings, imprisonments, riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. So clearly, how our life looks outwardly and what we are experiencing in material terms in our lives is not an indication of God's favour or not. And God's favour on our lives is his relationship with us and our relationship with him. Um, The favour of God is known to us in many different ways. In Romans, it tells us that God is with us and nothing can happen apart from his good purpose. It tells us in the Psalms that we have his ear as we walk through dark valleys. It tells us in Matthew that although our struggle is a struggle, it will not go unrewarded. It tells us in Romans that we can rest in quiet confidence that our sins are forgiven. And knowing all these things in our relationship with God, knowing them deeply in our hearts is God's favour on our lives. And if we ever needed to know that we can know God's favour in difficult places, then it's good to read about some people who have experienced real distress and hardship in their lives, but have known God's favour and joy in that. And I would recommend, um, if you want to investigate that a little bit further, that you read some stuff by people who belong to part of the church that we would call the persecuted church. Um, I've read uh, Richard Wormbrand's book, Tortured for Christ, and um, and another one of his books. And in there, he uh, stayed with me for a long time. There's a, a chapter where he's talking about being naked on the floor, beaten in a prison cell and known the most indescribable joy in the presence of God. And you think, really? Can can that actually happen? I don't think that would be me. But how do we know? God's favour in those really dark and difficult places. And another good book to read is a book by Brother Yun, the heavenly man, who um, is involved in um, setting up churches and and spreading the gospel in China. Um, He talks too about the favour of God in his life in really difficult places difficult circumstances. So it's possible for us this morning, whatever changes we are facing, uh, even the difficult ones, to know God's favour in our lives like Mary did. And I thought it was interesting that the first thing the angel said was you're favoured and then the angel brought this kind of slam dunk of great big chunky quite upsetting news. I thought that so we need to be careful what we think about um, favour because actually here God's uh, favour preceded a shocking and quite troubling announcement for Mary. So difficult change doesn't mean the absence of God's favour, and God's favour is with us in all the circumstances of life when our hearts are turned towards him. The next thing that it tells us about Mary in verse 29 is that she was troubled. It says Mary was greatly troubled at his words, and she wondered what kind of greeting this might be. So she's hearing these words, and she's trying to work out what they mean. Now, if you read this passage that I just read, it probably takes you about a minute and a half to read it tops. I don't know if the interaction between the angel Gabriel and Mary was a minute and a half tops, or whether the retelling of it in this chapter condenses it and summarizes it for the retelling of it. But I can imagine in that kind of conversation, Mary is going to be startled. She's going to be troubled. Here is an angel before her telling her the most amazing piece of news 
this great breakthrough of God into her life in this moment. And it tells us that Mary was troubled. She's trying to work out who this is that is speaking, what it is that he is saying, and what does it mean? And I think sometimes when we're facing periods of change, sometimes working out what God is saying can be really, really difficult. Sometimes hearing God's voice is a difficult thing. So how do we know when God is speaking and how do we differentiate God's voices from other voices and feelings and advice? There's loads and loads of places you can go these days for opinion and advice. There are blogs, there are forums, there are focus groups, there are other people's books, there are podcasts, there are TED Talks. And all of those things can contain good information if you know where you're looking. But if we really want to hear God's voice, if we really want to hear God's voice in trouble, then the Bible is where God's voice can be heard. And we need to read the Bible and we need to know what it's saying to us so that we can hear God's voice and know where he is taking us in periods of change. All scripture is God-breathed, is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And being here on a Sunday morning is part of that. As we hear God's word explained and taught in this church in a really truthful and honest and easily applicable way, um, it's good to be here and to hear these things and to be in God's word so that we can work out what it is that God is saying to us as we face changes. And Timothy goes, warns us in uh, uh, Timothy that a great number of teachers will say what itching ears want to hear and that people like us will turn away from truth and turn aside to myths. So we need to be careful where we're going for our information. We need to be careful where we're listening and what it is we're taking on board. And we need to make sure that we are in God's word and that we are hearing what he has to say to us. And the word of God is useful for us. It gives us broad brushstrokes in life, principles to live by. But it doesn't contain very specific information often about the choices that we need to make in our lives. And that's where we need wisdom and discernment and people around about us who can help us to hear God's voice. And I would say to you, if you're reading the Bible, do some really practical things. I would say if you're relatively new to reading the Bible, that a study Bible is a good idea. So you're reading and then there's notes down the bottom that help you to understand what it is that you're reading. I would say use a Bible commentary. If we're working through a book here of the Bible in, in the preaching series, get yourself a good Bible commentary and read each chapter in the Bible and read what the commentary says and make notes and think about it and process it. I've already said, listen to reliable, truthful Bible teaching. Be in church so that we're here and we're hearing what God is saying to us here. And here's the thing. And I think this is a teacher thing because part of the process of a teacher is that we plan and we do and we evaluate. And then we plan and we do and we evaluate. And I think there's something about that evaluation of where we're at and what we're hearing and how we apply it in our lives that's really applicable in life generally. Because it's really easy to come here on a Sunday morning and really enjoy the worship and listen to the words and say that was a great preach and wasn't the worship great and then go away and all it's really been is a little bit of tickle of a pleasant feeling for us on a Sunday morning. Unless we actually go away and we think about what was preached and we think about what we heard in the worship and we process what we feel God was saying to us and we apply it in our lives, if we don't do that, we're in danger of just becoming another kind of club that we attend in the week that is good for us for the time that we are there. So I really want to encourage you, if you want to hear God's voice, to take what you have on a Sunday morning away with you and process it. 
Process it, think about it, evaluate what does it mean for you, what changes might it make for you, what other reading or talking or discussing or praying do you need to do as a result. The other way that God speaks to us is through prophecy and words of knowledge and pictures and dreams and visions, and that is so exciting. Um, Joel says, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. On my manservants and my maidservants, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And prophetic words and words of knowledge and pictures and dreams and visions are all ways in which God may speak to us. It's amazing when God does that. It's truly encouraging. We need to handle these words carefully because these prophetic words that come to us and the pictures and the visions, they don't carry the same authority as scripture. They need to be weighed. We heard about that on the missional weekend that we were were at. They need to be weighed and they need to be filtered through scripture. And that's important. That's one of the reasons why it's important that we know the word of God. So that when we weigh and filter these things, we're weighing and filtering them through the truth of God's word. Wayne Grudem says in his book, Bible Doctrine, which is a really, really good, simple book to kind of understand the doctrine of the Christian church, says, speaking of um, the word prophet and prophecy, much more commonly in the New Testament, the words prophet and prophecy were used of ordinary Christians who spoke not with absolute divine authority, but to report or bring something that God had laid in their hearts or brought to mind. And um, it's great to belong to a church where we value that gift and where we are able to bring prophetic words to each other to help us to hear what God is saying, uh, to help us to manage the changes in our life and to see where we are going. Um, I think in all churches, we build up a kind of culture and a language, don't we, that we understand within our four walls. And that's, that happens in all organisations. It happens in, in education where I work. I'm sure it happens in the NHS. You have a terminology and you have a way of speaking that people who are inside understand. And like I said to you before, I, before I came here to King's, I came from a church where that prophecy and those kind of um, miraculous kind of speaking of God in the now didn't really happen. And I remember the first maybe 18 months of being in King's thinking to myself, I can't really get a handle on what they mean by this prophecy thing. I'm not really sure um, what that's really about, kind of, kind of grappling what that actually meant and what it was. I know it sounds strange to you if you were brought up in a charismatic church where that happened all the time, but I find that kind of uh, difficult to, to grapple with. But I think it's really important that we practice that, that we explain these things to each other. And if it's helpful for you, I thought I might just share um, uh, an um, incident where um, I felt I had a word of prophecy to bring. And I thought I might share where I had a word of prophecy that I received, because it might be helpful in the explaining of that for you to understand how that actually practically, pragmatically works um, in our lives. Um, I remember being here on a Sunday morning and um, in the worship, I felt that God was speaking. And the only way that I can describe hearing God's voice in that kind of situation is, well, first of all, I mean, I don't hear God speak to me like in an audible voice. So that's the first thing. When I came here and people were saying God is speaking to me, I'm like, so like, like in an audible voice? And that's a question that a child can ask. But as a grown up, it's not really a question that you feel you can necessarily ask. So when I say that I hear God's voice, sometimes I do hear God's voice. Not every day and not particularly um, even every week. But when I do hear God's voice, I'm usually here. So the first thing when I kind of processed that and thought about it was, well, if I hear God's voice when I'm here, 
with all the other people here in Kings, then the chances are that maybe God has something to say that's for the other people in Kings, because I hardly ever hear God speak like that to me when I'm on my own. So that kind of, first of all, made a bit of logical sense to me. And the only way that I can describe God speaking in that sense to me is that maybe sometimes in the worship, we'll just be worshiping and I just feel still for a little while. And it's like, you can laugh when I say this, but it's kind of in my head, like my head is a piggy bank with a slot in it. And it's like God is just kind of dropping a phrase or a word into my head. That's how it feels to me. And I remember being here on a Sunday morning and God saying to me the words, God has you in his protective custody. And I was like, well, that's a strange phrase. God has you in his protective custody. And I remember at the time thinking, well, I don't think that that particularly applies to me, but it might be for somebody else. And I came to the front and I brought that word. God has you in his protective custody. At the same time, I had a picture in my mind of someone with children, arms around about them. And I felt that that was a word for someone. And I brought that word and it, it was a word for someone in the church. It was a word for someone who was struggling and for whom that phrase, God has you in protective custody, was hugely reassuring. But we need to filter these things, don't we? So what does filter that mean? What, what does filter that through the word of scripture mean? Well, we're looking to see if that word adds up with what the rest of God's word says. So the rest of God's word says that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run to it and they are safe. It says that God will take us under the shadow of his wing. So we're looking at scripture, we're hearing prophetic word and we're seeing that the prophetic word matches with what the word of God is saying. Does that make sense to you? Um, in terms of a prophetic word received and God speaking into my life, in a previous church that I was in, I'm part of um, working in the leadership team there, and we had this um, one of those kind of like super spiritual guys who comes, you know, someone who's really experienced in hearing God and preaching and prophetic words, and we all want to hear from him. And we were gathered together, and uh, he said that he had a prophetic word for me, and his prophetic word was about a couple of things, but one of the things he said in that prophetic word was that you have a child, God's hand is on his life, God will help you to raise him. And at the time I thought, that's lovely, that's really nice, that's fine, wrote it down when we book it on, I went. But what happened there was about 12 weeks after that, I found myself on my own as a single parent with a little boy who was two. My world was kind of in pieces. And when that happened to me, I looked back on that prophetic word and I was like, that was God speaking to me. And you have got absolutely no idea how much reassurance that word of God brought to me in that time. And in the times when I felt like I couldn't cope, when the times I felt like I couldn't get out from under my duvet and make the day happen, I would remember that God had spoken and he had said, you have, you have a child, God's hand is on his life, he will help you to raise him. And that brought me a tremendous amount of confidence. And again, if we filter these things through the word of God, the word of God tells us that he is our shield, he is our strength, he is our rock, that um, when the storms come, that he is underneath us and he is holding us up, that if we train up a child in the way he should go, they won't depart from it. All that made sense to me. I hope that's helpful for you in terms of working out how we use these prophetic words to hear God speak to us both in giving and receiving them. The last thing I want to say then is that um, Mary was questioning. She asks, how will this be? There are loads of examples in scriptures of heroes of faith questioning God. Moses says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? He says, what if they don't believe me or listen to what I say? Isaiah is asking, how long, O Lord? And Jesus himself, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
So if we ever needed to know that it's okay to question God in our changing times, then we can see it from that passage of scripture there where Jesus himself is asking questions. But here's the thing. There are questions that can lead you to spiritual life and there are questions that lead you to spiritual death. There's questioning that can take you in the direction of confidence and questioning that will take you in the direction of doubt. And there's questioning that will take you to belief and there's questioning that will take you to unbelief. And in Mark 9 verse 20, a man brings his convulsing son to Jesus. The disciples have already tried to deal with the spirit that was possessing the boy and they weren't able to. And it says in Mark 9, they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked, how long has he been like this? From childhood, the man said, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for him who believes. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And if you are questioning in your period of change this morning, what I want to say to you is this. Stay in a place of believing doubt. Stay in a place where belief is your destination because God will come. He will answer your questions. And if he doesn't answer your questions to your satisfaction, he will come and be with you in your questioning and lead you to a place of greater confidence. I hope that's been helpful for you this morning. I hope it helps you to see that God is with us in the changes and that we can display to the world a quiet confidence about our lives that speaks to the world as a witness of the God that we believe in. God, we want to thank you for your word to us this morning. We want to thank you for um, being with us here. Thank you for the way that you speak to us. And God, we ask this morning that you would drop your still dues of quietness till all our strivings cease, that you would take from our souls the strain and the stress, and that you would let our ordered lives confess the beauty of your peace. God, help us as we face change in our lives. Help us to rely on you. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us through your word, through words of prophecy, through pictures? Would you be with us? Would you help us in our questioning to stay in a place of belief as we question and as we work through the things that try us in life, I pray? Go with us this day, God, I pray. Help us to process these things and apply them in our lives to be more like you, Jesus. Thank you for your presence with us this morning. Amen.